church. I don't know what I think about being up here on the stage. I don't think I like this. I'm not a fan of this, guys. This is too, too far away. You all seem so small right now. You got this, Pastor. And I know that's not true. You're normal-sized people. Oh, good morning. And hey, happy Reformation Day. I'm a pastor. I have to do that. I have to say, if you don't know if you guys noticed, someone nailed the 95 Theses in the front of our door this morning with scratch tape. Uh, I don't know if we could have possibly done that. They were supposed to put up 95 Reese's peanut butter cups for you guys, and someone missed, missed the memo. So I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, hey, I know that's the cheesy, like, I'm a pastor, I'm required to say that, but I actually would really encourage you guys. I know this is whatever, I know it's Halloween, you've either got to give or receive candy at some point today. But I would encourage you to get on Google and actually read the 95 Theses and take a minute and read about the Reformation and why we are beneficiaries of that amazing theological heritage. Reading about guys like Luther or Calvin or Zwingli or even the second generation guys, guys like Nicholas Zinzendorf and um, Menon and things like that. It's really, really beneficial to know our history, to know where we came from as a church, to know the shoulders of brothers and sisters that we stand on and how we benefit from those things today. So you have a cool, easy reminder to do that today. Literally before you leave, you can look on the front door and read a couple and see what you think about it. So glad you guys are here. Thanks for worshiping with us today. I don't know if you noticed, we're set up a little different because today's Baptism Sunday. And I can't that's what I'm talking about. Best Sunday of the year, for real. Yeah. For real. Guys, we're going to jump into it. We're going to continue our series in Acts today. If you want to turn to Acts 14, before we get there, a couple things I need to remind you of. The first one is just boring. It's this. Uh, you should have gotten an email this weekend from Emmanuel Fellowship Church. We finally got our group joint email list up and running and set up through our church administration software called Planning Center Online. So here's what I'm telling you. If you did receive that email, awesome, everything worked fine. If, it, if you didn't, there's only two reasons you wouldn't have received that email. Either it went to your spam folder, or we don't have your email address. So, I, I need, need you to check, check if you didn't get it, and you talk to Pastor Craig to make sure uh, you are set up in PCO so you get communications from the pastors and church leaders. Sound good? Yeah. Awesome. So, we're going to be spending the next several months, I am going to knock something over, there's a reason they don't allow me on the stage. It's because everything up here is expensive. Uh, in the next several months, we're going to be going through the last third of the book of Acts, talking through some of these amazing stories of the faith, how the Holy Spirit moved to grow and build his church into a global movement of which we, Emmanuel Fellowship, are a part. And so we've taken last Sunday and this Sunday to do this kind of little micro-series where we basically do some big picture overviews of what's happening in the first two-thirds of the book of Acts. Last week, we went through Acts 1 through 12, talked about the birth of the age of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit, how the anointing of the Holy Spirit is what empowers and moves the church, what advances the kingdom, and how we today are recipients of that same ministry. We talked about how we are living the same story that our brothers and sisters are living that we read about. The age of the church began when Christ ascended into heaven and sent his spirit after him, and it will not end until Christ returns and makes all things new. Amen? 
So we talked about this idea, right? We are living the same story. And what we saw in Acts 1 through 12 was the movement of the church move from Jesus and his 12 followers to 120 people hiding in a house in Jerusalem to a global movement involving, involving all peoples, right? It moved out of Jerusalem to the surrounding Judea, into Samaria, out of the Jewish faith and Jewish culture, into the Gentile world. And all that kind of comes together in Acts chapter 12 when the Apostle Peter preaches the gospel to a Roman centurion, right? The, the epitome of the opposite of the oppressed Jewish people, the empowered oppressor, right? Receives the gospel and receives the same Holy Spirit who came to the church at Pentecost, comes to the family of Cornelius, the Gentile Roman military official. And we're, we're at, that, at that point, we're just clued in that what God is doing in this new age, in the church, in this new covenant, is something buck wild. It's something we've never seen before, which is essentially what we're going to talk about today. We're going to move from Acts 13 through Acts 17 today, and we're going to talk about this first chunk of the second half of Acts. Acts essentially functions in three main scenes, but two sections. The first section is Acts 1 through 12 and tells the story of the church moving from Jerusalem to becoming a global movement. It's told primarily through the lens of this church in Jerusalem and the apostle Peter. In Acts 12, once, once the Gentiles are included in through Cornelius, the, 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 the story shifts and all of a sudden the main focus is on the ministry of the apostle Paul, who was an apostle to the Gentiles, who was based out of the church at Antioch a church outside of Jerusalem, part of the larger Roman Empire. And so Acts 13 through Acts 20 tells the story of Paul's missionary journeys. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. And then in Acts 21, Paul gets arrested finally. And Acts 21 through 28 tells the story of his journey to Rome as he's being arrested. And it'll be cool when we get to that because there's some buckwild stuff that happens in there. But today we're going to be in Acts chapter 14, we're going to be reading one of my favorite passages in all of the book of Acts. And we're reading it because this really is, I think, one of the perfect exemplars of this section of Acts, the section that, you know, 13 through 20 that covers Paul's missionary journeys. We're going to get just a really good window into what the missionary ministry of the early church looked like. So Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 8, we read this. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laocian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And a priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also were men of, of like nature with you, and we bring you good news 
that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see, in past generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, but he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But then, this is verse 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and drug him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, this morning as we take a few minutes to talk about this section of our history as a church, as a family, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be our discipler, that you would speak to us, that you would clarify your word, that we would hear from you this morning. God, when it gets down to it, we want to be people who are obedient to you. We want to be a part of this work you are doing in our world. So God, we ask that you would encourage, that you would remind and that you would convict that we might leave this place more like you, more involved in what you're doing. We love you, Jesus. We trust you, Jesus. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to get to this specific story. It's one of my favorites, but give me a couple minutes. (laughs) So we're in this second kind of section of Acts, right? Acts 13 through 20. This is going through Paul's missionary journeys. And as we said, there's this focus here, this shift from Jerusalem, from the perspective of the Apostle Peter, now to the Apostle Paul and the church at Antioch and the ministry that comes out of that. And the reason, I think, is really good for us. You see, this movement started as a small fringe Jewish movement in the Jewish capital of the world. It started with the teachings of a rabbi in Judea and the the small amount of people that followed him and even the 120 that were there at the day of Pentecost and even the 3,000 that were there after the day of Pentecost, this was still a small Jewish movement. But that's never what Jesus intended. We talked about this last week, but when Jesus actually ascended to heaven, the very first narrative in Acts, in Acts chapter 1, the last thing he said to them before he went to heaven, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is not just the theme of Acts, an outline of Acts, because this is the theme of the age of the church. The the church of Jesus was never intended to be a small Jewish sect. It was intended to be the harboring of the kingdom of God. It was intended to be a global movement made up of all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, all cultures. 
And we see that movement happening in Acts, this, this constant expansion, whether it's through people traveling, whether it's through, in the beginning of Acts, it's through persecution that drives the church out of Jerusalem into the surrounding areas. And what we see in Acts 1 through 12 is that the people of Jesus, the people of the kingdom, take the gospel message with them wherever they end up. Wherever they go, wherever they travel, wherever their home, wherever their work is, wherever they are, they take the gospel with them, which is amazing. It's how the gospel begins to spread and expand outside of Jerusalem, especially when the persecution comes along and pushes the church outside of the city. But when you get to Acts chapter 12 and you have the conversion of Cornelius, And all of a sudden, it's like the Holy Spirit is hitting the church over the head saying, remember what he said, the ends of the earth, all peoples, come on, let's let's do this thing. And then Acts tells us something really strange and really sorrowful. The apostle James is martyred. He's killed. And it really is this kind of bursting of the bubble. Because on that mountain, on the day when Christ ascended to heaven, Who was there? The apostles. The the fathers of the church, right? Those who brought the message, the sent ones who Jesus hand-selected on the mount. But here's the thing. It was always, always, always designed to move beyond them, to move past them. So when all of a sudden you have the Holy Spirit anointing in power a Roman centurion, And you start to see the apostles dying. It changes the perspective on this whole movement. You see, you would be forgiven if you read Luke in the beginning of Acts. You'd be forgiven for thinking, oh, Jesus is going to hang somewhere for like two months. And then he's coming back. Because that's kind of how it reads. It kind of reads like Jesus like, look, guys, just chill. Holy Spirit's coming. I'll be back. Trust me. But that's not what's going on. And they should have known that because that's what he said. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. They have no internet. The ends of the earth is going to take a while, right? That should have been apparent, but it wasn't. It felt like this was this very immediate thing. Jesus is coming back literally any minute now. We've got to get this work done. But when you have the family of Cornelius with the Holy Spirit, and you have James martyred and Peter almost martyred, It really does give you this perspective to step back and go, there is something bigger happening here. This is probably going to take a little longer than we thought, (laughs) right? And now the perspective, the story shifts over the Apostle Paul and the church at Antioch. Now remember, Paul was this young, famous rabbi, Saul, who had actually helped instigate the initial persecution in Jerusalem. He was dedicated to the destruction of the church, and God miraculously saves him on the road to Damascus, appears to him in a vision, supernaturally blinds him, the scales fall from his eyes, he becomes a follower of Christ, and not just a follower of Christ, but in Paul's own words, the very one who persecuted us now is preaching the good news. Jesus be, or Paul becomes a leader in the church, and specifically the church at Antioch. As, as Antioch grows, as Jerusalem is dispersed, other churches begin to grow in other cities. Antioch grows and becomes one of the first large established churches outside of Jerusalem. So influential, in fact, that Antioch is actually the first place where they're called Christians. That's where our, our heritage, our name, and our faith comes from, is from the ministry of our brothers and sisters of the church at Antioch. 
This church is growing so big that the leaders in Jerusalem say, hey, we've got to send some pastors there. So they send this young man, Barnabas, who's been in the story the whole time. He has some pretty key points in the early story. They send Barnabas. He gets there and starts to get into the ministry in Antioch and realizes, I need help. And so he goes and hunts down the converted Rabbi Saul and brings him with him to serve and minister and lead and pastor at this church at Antioch. Now, as they're serving and leading and pastoring and shepherding this church, at some point, the Holy Spirit speaks to the leaders of the church and says, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have set them to. And all of a sudden, Barnabas and Saul are sent on the first missionary journey. Now, guys, this is an important distinction. Because remember, up to this point, the followers of Jesus have taken the gospel with them everywhere they've gone, right? When they leave, when they work, when they play, when they walk around, when they get dispersed because of persecution, they take the gospel with them. But Paul and Barnabas are doing something new. They are taking a trip explicitly for the purpose of taking the gospel to new places. This is not a passive thing of, well, I got to go to Cyprus anyway, so I guess I'll preach Jesus while I'm there. This is them going, okay, where are there no churches? Where can we preach Christ? And strategically planning out a trip. And the rest of Paul's life from this point on is really defined by this missionary ministry. Paul and Barnabas will take one trip together. And in the book of Acts, three of Paul's missionary journeys are recorded, although church historians debate whether, whether those are the only three he took or maybe he took four or five or whatever. But in Acts, we get three of his missionary journeys. The first one is with Paul and Barnabas, and they travel uh, into, into the ocean, into the, uh, um, into the Mediterranean Sea, under the island of Cyprus, and make their way up into Asia Minor and Galatia, what we in modern day call Turkey, And they plant churches throughout Galatia. The book of Galatians in your New Testament is a letter Paul wrote to those churches immediately after that journey to try and encourage them. After that, Paul and Barnabas actually get in a fight and split up and split their ministry. And then Paul and Silas take a second missionary journey where they travel up through Galatia, through Asia Minor, and into Greece, modern day Greece, into planting the first churches in Europe. And the third missionary journey is Paul and Silas and several other people. And he essentially follows the same route, but going to a lot of the major cities, old Greek cities around the Roman Empire. That's, that's kind of the journeys you're going to see as you move through Acts. Our story in Acts 14 is right at the end of the first missionary journey. This is Paul and Barnabas making their way. They've left the church at Antioch, traveled through Cyprus, gone up into Asia Minor, and they're traveling through Galatia. By the way, most of your Bibles probably have a map on the back that shows you pictures of this. I would encourage you to look at that and kind of have the geography in your brain a little bit. But they've made their way into Galatia. And again, I said this is kind of an exemplar of how these stories go. Paul's missionary journeys are pretty much, they're pretty predictable. The way he behaves, the way his ministry works out as he goes city to city is pretty formulaic in a good way. You know, Paul understood his ministry. He said himself, you know, I have made it my aim to preach Christ where he is not known. And so he specifically seeks out areas where no one has heard the gospel. And when he comes into an area, his first priority is to figure out if there's a Jewish congregation. If there is, he goes there first and preaches the gospel to the Jews in the synagogue or their place of prayer in hopes of establishing an initial church of believers, of people who have some biblical knowledge. And then he moves out to the marketplace and preaches to the Gentiles. He saw his ministry as primarily to the Gentiles. By the way, if you're curious, this is a little side note, but if you're curious about the name change, Saul to Paul, it's actually less mysterious than we make it out to be. Paul is just the Greek pronunciation of his Jewish name, Saul. 
And since he saw himself as primarily an apostle to the Gentiles, from the moment he began his missionary endeavors, he began going primarily by that pronunciation of his name. And it's how he became known. So these journeys, he goes into a town. The gospel has not been preached here before. He looks for a Jewish community. If there isn't one, he goes and preaches to the Gentiles. He seeks to establish a church. Pretty much every time this happens, usually either something supernatural happens and people get angry, or he's really good at preaching and people get angry. It's usually one of those two things. But the end result is people get angry. And usually at the end of the story, they run Paul out of town and the church, the brand new church of like two-day-old believers is left watching Paul like get chased out of the city going, what did we just sign up for? And that's pretty much every stop on the journey. So you look at our text, right? Paul and Barnabas, they make their way to the city of Lystra, which is primarily a Gentile city. There's no established Jewish presence here. And so they're making their way into the marketplace to preach. They find this crippled man. And Paul, through the power of the Spirit, supernaturally heals this guy. Now, we don't have time to get into this today, but this area in Galatia had some real baggage with their understanding of Greek and Roman gods. There's a famous story about Zeus and Hermes coming to visit some places in this area and then killing a bunch of people because they weren't nice. And so when they think, when they think like divinity has shown up, uh, it, it like flicks some switches in their heads. And as soon as they see this guy supernaturally heal a crippled guy, they freak out and go, oh, shoot, Paul, Zeus and Hermes have come back. We need to do better this time. And so they go and they start trying to worship Paul and Barnabas. They actually bring a priest from Zeus to try and offer sacrifices. And remember, Paul and Barnabas don't speak their language. <laughs> so as soon as they kind of figure out what's going on, like, hey, these guys are praising God for this miracle. Oh, no, oh, oh, shoot, they're worshiping us. No, 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 no stop, you can't do that. And, and, they, and they try and stop and slow down the thing. And you get this amazing example of Paul's preaching here. Paul's preaching is actually, again, very formulaic. If you read through books like Romans or read through his letters, you know, his, his gospel presentation was very thought out and very intense. And he knew how and why he was speaking from Scripture. And he offers these people, he says, look, guys, look, 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 look. God is doing something new. And he's calling you to be a part of it. You can't keep doing all this old stuff you were doing. God is doing something new and you have access to him and you need to repent and believe and be a part of the new thing he's doing because it's here for you. It's an open invitation to you. And when Paul preaches, the Holy Spirit anoints it and some believe. And that happens pretty much everywhere he goes. Some believe and a church is planted. And even in this story, in the middle of all this chaos, a guy running around healed, a priest of Zeus trying to kill a bull, people freaking out, speaking different languages, Paul and Barnabas trying to stop people from offering sacrifices to them, and Paul giving his sermon in the midst of this chaos. Even in that, the Holy Spirit works and saves some people. And a church is born in a city called Lystra. Which, by the way, these sister cities here, Lystra and Derby and Iconium, they're going to become very important for the early church. One of Paul's disciples who he raises up as a leader in the early church is a young man named Timothy who comes from this community, uh, which is pretty, pretty mind-blowing, right? That this is the moment when the gospel comes to Lystra is all this chaos, right? And yet God is not somehow surprised. God is not somehow like overthrown. God is not somehow messed up by this chaos. Instead, he still empowers Paul's preaching, and some still come to know Christ. But then things get worse. 
You see, Paul's message to a lot of Jewish people, remember, to young Paul himself before he converted, sounds like heresy. It sounds like they are breaking the biblical teaching. So some Jews who heard his message earlier in the journey have decided, we're not content with Paul just leaving our city. We're going to follow him and let other people know this guy is a liar. And so right about this time, in the middle of all this chaos, some Jewish leaders from Antioch and Iconium, these other synagogues where Paul's already preached, show up in the midst of the chaos. And they already don't like Paul. And the people are already a little upset and a little confused. And so when they start saying, hey, this guy's a liar and he's dangerous and he's a heretic, that kind of clicks. And all of a sudden, this same group of people that literally just minutes ago was trying to worship Paul and Barnabas and offer sacrifice to them are whipped up into a murderous frenzy and they stone Paul to death. Now, really quick, the text doesn't say they stoned Paul to death. It says they stoned him. And if that, if that, if that kind of is like a little trip up for you, I want to just really quick. You don't, you don't usually say, right, like they lethal injectioned him to death. It's like they lethal injection, they gave him a lethal injection, right? This is a form of execution that was well known in this part of the world that people knew how to do. And regardless of whether or not Paul survived it, it was a brutal scene. They drug him into the city square and they beat him with stones until they thought he was dead. Right? This is a this is an awful scene. And they drag his seemingly dead body outside the town. And then the text tells us that Barnabas and this new church gather around his body. Now, really quick, I know I've already said this a couple times, but I want you to put yourself in this scene for a second. Imagine you are the brand new convert at Lystra. Imagine you are middle school age Timothy, right? Who just had his youth camp high experience, I guess. And now the guy who preached to you is laying bloody, bruised, and broken and seemingly dead outside the town. And his pastor buddy's just kind of standing there like, uh, well, I guess let's pray. You know, this is a rough scene. I mean, imagine what you would be thinking, feeling, doubting in that moment. And yet once again, this book, I've said this a couple times and I'll keep saying as we go through it, is not about the acts of Paul. It's not even about the acts of the church. This book is about the acts of the Holy Spirit, how God works to advance his kingdom, how God is working to invade this planet and make the gospel known and save the dead from hell and resurrect human souls. God is not defeated by a group of Jewish leaders from Iconium. He's not defeated by a riot, and he's certainly not defeated by a bunch of rocks. So Paul gets up which is wild. And we can debate, it doesn't matter, really quick, it doesn't matter if Paul was dead or not at that moment. Boy got up after getting stoned, after getting publicly executed. Boy stood up, covered in blood and bruises and broken bones, nose out of joint, teeth missing, arm bending the wrong way. And it says, he walks back into the town. I mean, come on. That's some boldness. I want you to imagine that scene as he walks back into the city square and has to step around his own pool of blood. As those people are starting to go back about their business and they look over and he's like, I'm back, second service in about 15 minutes. 
It's wild. And then he goes, and they preach in Derby, and they're like, okay, this is done. I'm almost dead. Let's head back to Antioch. And they make their way, circle back through all the churches they visited. They install pastors and elders. They pray over the church. And look what Paul says to them to kind of get these churches off on the right foot. You must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Tell you what, talk about putting your money where your mouth is. Imagine you were the, like, the church, that brand new church, back at Iconium. Paul comes and he preaches, things get wild, you know, a riot runs him out of town. You're like, that's wild, but I'm glad we're a part of this. Then like four weeks later, he comes back into town, half dead, and he's like, don't worry. Gospel's still advancing. There's a church at Lystra and at Derby now. Anyway, many tribulations to get you in the kingdom of God. This guy's your new pastor. See you later. Uh, and then he wanders away. This is, this is a wild level of boldness, of intensity, of being all in for the work he's doing, Right? Paul making his way back to the church at Antioch to report in as a missionary, having been stoned. <laughs> Those are not, this is the ancient world, right? Those are not injuries that heal quickly, <laughs> apart from, I guess, the intervention of the Holy Spirit. But you guys get what I'm saying. This is an intense scene. And this, and many others like it, if you read through this section. By the way, a lot of other cool stuff happens. After this first missionary journey, they, they get into this big debate about whether or not you have to convert to Judaism before you can be a Christian. They have a council. They go back to Jerusalem. Spoiler alert if you haven't read it. You don't have to convert to Judaism to be a Christian. But, but really, the, the main thrust of this section is these missionary endeavors. And this scene we see played out over and over and over. The missionary shows up and proclaims the gospel and says, the kingdom of God is open to everyone, including you. Repent and believe. And God does something amazing and a church is born and then people get angry and things go bad and the missionaries have to leave very quickly. And that's the story over and over and over and over throughout the next several chapters. And we're going to read about it over and over and over and over. And I think there's a reason for that. See, we've said this. I've said this last week. I'm going to say it again. We're going to keep saying this as we go through this. Emmanuel Fellowship, we are living the same story. We are part of the same church. God, the way God works may, does, look different in 2021 in suburban St. Louis. But it is the same story. It's the same ministry, the same Holy Spirit, the same church awaiting the same Jesus to return, bearing witness to the same person, the same work, the same gospel. Amen. So what do we take from this body of work, from these missionary endeavors? Is this the sort of thing that we need to like find our young people who are wanting to go to missionary school and go overseas and go, hey, make sure you read Acts 14 before you go. It might be wild. <laughs> yeah, they should. But, beloved, what I love about Acts is that Acts reminds us that it's not just the set-apart people doing the work. The Holy Spirit comes in power upon all of God's people. And so much of Acts is just church people saying yes to Jesus. It's just church people walking forward in faith and obedience and seeing what God does with his spirit and some faith and obedience. So Acts 14 Acts 13, Acts 15, Acts 16, Acts 17, these missionary journey stories, beloved, these are for you. They're for you right here and right now. 
These speak into how you live your faith when you walk out those doors in just a few minutes. I promise you they do. I think these stories tell us two really important things about the kingdom of God and how it plays out in our own life. First one is this. The gospel is for everybody. Everybody. The gospel, beloved of Jesus, is for everyone. A little later, the Apostle John will get a vision of what the end of all things will look like. Jesus appeared to him supernaturally and showed him what it will look like when he comes back and establishes his eternal kingdom. In Revelation 7, John describes that point in human and Revelation history like this. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe, from every nation, from all peoples, from every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Beloved of Jesus, the kingdom of God is for all people, everyone. Every nation, every people, every tribe, every culture, God seems to delight in the diversity of his creation. And when we get to heaven, you will see a little bit of everything. It's for everyone, which means this. Hear this, church. You have never met a person the kingdom of God is not intended for. You've never met a person that wasn't designed for heaven. The image of God rests in every human being. He made us in his likeness. He loves us. He says that he he wishes all people, every person would be in his kingdom. Beloved, you you have never interacted with a human being that is not precious to God, that is not deeply loved by him, that he does not passionately desire to be a part of his kingdom. Your favorite people, your least favorite people, the worst person you can think of, the person you hate, the person that annoys you, the person you avoid, the person that wrongs you and you don't want to forgive them, every single one of them is beloved to Jesus. And you, hear this church, you, you, are the missionary who gets to bear witness of who Jesus is and what he thinks of them to that person, period. You are. You are the missionary. When Jesus left, Matthew's telling of the same story of Jesus' ascension. In those final words, he said, go therefore and make disciples because I have all the authority. It's all been given to me. I won. The gospel's real. The kingdom's coming. So go and make disciples of all people. Make disciples of all of them. All in the Greek is a really interesting word. It means all. All of them. That's a dumb joke, I'm sorry. (laughs) Beloved, every person that you walk in front of is made in the image of God. Every person that you interact with is beloved of Jesus. And you have been left here to bear witness to what you have seen and what you have heard. This means you are a missionary to your neighbors, to your friends, to your coworkers, to your children, to your grandchildren, to your nieces and nephews, everyone you know, every human you interact with, precious, made in his image, and you get to bear witness because, this is the amazing part, the kingdom that you're bearing witness to is for them. You know, before the cross... 
who you were, where you were born, and what you did said a lot about how you got to connect to God. Were you born Jewish? Did you follow the law? Are you currently ceremonially clean? Those things got to speak into how intimate you got to be with God. But praise be to God, we live on the other side of the cross. And the kingdom of God has been opened to all peoples, all nations, every tribe, every tongue, every language. Come on. It's for everybody. But here's the problem. The gospel is the best news in human history. Designed to capture the heart of every person, every culture, every place. But every person, every culture, every place is also deeply and totally and completely broken by the curse, by sin, and by death. So when you walk into a human place corrupted and destroyed by sin, and you proclaim the gospel of Jesus, the best news in human history, the easiest deal, right? The best deal you can think of. Hey, how about you trade all of your sin and evil for all of Jesus' righteousness and purity and then get him in heaven forever? That's the deal in front of you, right? And yet, when you walk into distorted, sinful, broken human world, cultures, people, places, and you proclaim that message, you will cause problems because the gospel is deeply offensive to the curse. The gospel is deeply upsetting to death and to sin and to broken and dead human hearts. This is why Paul would later say in the, in the second chapter of the second letter to the Corinthians, to those who are being saved, the gospel is this fra- it's a potpourri of fragrance of life, but to everyone else, it is the stench of death. It offends. It angers. That's why Paul walked into a city and said, hey, don't worship me. I'm not God. But guess what? God loves you and he's invited you into eternity and he's invited you into forgiveness. Come be a part of it. And their response was, cool, how about we kill you? Because the gospel stirs the pot and human culture and human sinfulness and human brokenness is not a fan of the gospel. So beloved, just like you are the missionary... And every place you go, just like you are living the same story, just like you have been called to proclaim this amazing good news to everyone you meet, to bear witness in every place God places you, you had best also be prepared. Jesus said, count the cost of discipleship before following him. No one builds a tower without first making sure he has enough money to complete it. You should count the cost of discipleship. Now, praise be to God, we live in a time and a place where it's incredibly unlikely that anyone's going to drag you into the city square and stone you for preaching the gospel. But if you proclaim the gospel, it will bear consequences on your life because the curse will be offended by it. And those people you love, those people that Jesus loves, those people that you're proclaiming the gospel to, apart from him, their heart's been corrupted by that curse. And so very likely they will be offended by it. And again, you may not get stoned, but you may get called into HR And you may have relationships broken. And you may have people think less of you. And you may lose social standing or social credit. And listen, guys, I'm not sitting here trying to guilt you and go, Paul got stoned, get over it. No, 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 no. That's real cost. That's real pain. That's real suffering. But Jesus warned us of this. 
they treat the master poorly, how much worse will they treat his servants? Paul warned us of this. There are many tribulations you will enter into the kingdom of God. Beloved, you are living the same story. You have been called into the same church, called to the same work, and it is an insane privilege. You get to bear witness to Jesus. You get to proclaim the most amazing message on earth. And this is the best part of it. You literally can't screw it up. I mean, look at the story we just read. These guys wandered into town to preach the gospel, and before they even got to the gospel part, there were people worshiping them, trying to offer sacrifices to them as pagan gods. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess you've never shared your faith and had someone go, I should sacrifice an ox to you right now. This is great. You can't screw it up because it's Jesus' church. Because the Holy Spirit is the one advancing his kingdom because he's moving in power and he will have his and the kingdom will advance and the church will grow no matter how bad you mess it up. How amazing is that? You get the privilege, beloved, of joining with Jesus in his work and you can't mess it up. You just get to say yes and walk forward in faith and obedience and see what he does with faith and obedience. I'll tell you what he does. He will show up in the midst of your tribulation when things go badly for you because you shared the gospel, when people think less of you and relationships are broken, that bears real consequences on your life, on your relationships, on your family, and on your wallet. Jesus will show up and he will still save people. And the worst scenario you can think of will not conquer the living God. And the church will still advance and dead souls will be raised from the dead and there will be people at the wedding feast of the Lamb who you get to celebrate with, who you got to be there when the light switched on and Jesus resurrected their hearts from death to life. Come on, what a privilege. Yes, it will cost you. It's a real cost, one you have to weigh. But I'm here to tell you, not just as your pastor, not just as a brother in Christ, I'm here to tell you as just someone who's been saved by grace. It is worth it. It is worth it. Beloved, Jesus is going to advance his kingdom whether you walk in faith and obedience or not. But why would you want to miss out on that? We're part of the story. Your name's on the page. You're in a chapter. So let's do it, huh? Let's be a part of it. Let's, let's do our part in the story, amen? Pray with me. Father, you are so good. You're so good to us, Jesus. I cannot believe the insane privilege, love, the gentleness you've given us. To be called into your kingdom to be saved from our sin, to, to get to join with you in this work, Jesus, it is insane. You are so kind and so good. Lord, I pray that every single one of us in this room, that we would consider the weight of your love for all peoples. That we would consider the breadth of your kingdom and the scope of your ministry, that, that the witness may be borne to the very ends of the earth, and that it would just excite us. That it would get us riled up. 
that we would pay the cost to avoid missing out on this amazing thing you're doing. Jesus, don't pass us by. Include us in your work. Include Emmanuel in your work. May we get to see your spirit move to resurrect the dead and save the lost. We love you, Jesus. We trust you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Beloved, do the work you need to do with Jesus. Jesus. You need to sit and pray and consider. That's awesome. You need to say, be a part of this, celebrate who God is. That's awesome. You need to ask a pastor to pray with you. Talk through some area of disobedience or something that's a block in your heart. Please, please do that. Let's experience this moment. Let's be what God has for us in the home and at our time. Sound good?